This is a Conversations with Criminologists podcast, brought to you by Criminology at University College Cork. This series was produced by Dr. Orla Lynch, with research assistant Helen Russell, and edited by Kevin Hosford. Dr. Deirdre Healy, University College Dublin. So can you tell me how you got into academia? Okay, well I started off doing a uh, or an undergraduate degree at Trinity College Dublin in philosophy and psychology. And while I was studying, I was trying to think about where I'd like to go next career-wise. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in the idea of going into clinical psychology, but I had a few ideas of the kind of boxes I wanted my job to tick. Um, so while I was thinking about that, I was looking at the course list for our final year. And one of the uh, options was forensic psychology. And as soon as I saw that, it was like something clicked in my brain. And I realised this is exactly the job I want to do. Uh, it's going to be varied, dynamic, interesting. It also has a social value as well because you know what you can produce research-wise or you know whatever whatever role you have is going to have an impact on the real world, you know, and people's lives. So that was really kind of my instant reaction on seeing that course. And then when I was actually in the course, I did a number of topics uh, or studied a number of topics, for example, uh, juvenile detention. uh, And it really got me thinking about the prison system in ways that I hadn't really thought about it before. And it occurred to me that there must be another way to um, deal with people who commit crime, particularly people who haven't committed very serious crimes. Uh, So that really got me interested in the idea of probation, supervision, rehabilitation in the community, but I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go from that, you know, what kind of career you could have, because criminology was a very new discipline at the time. It had really only become established in the last year or two. And um, so I was kind of feeling, putting out feelers, trying to figure out, you know, should I go into the rehabilitation field? Was there another avenue? And it was really after talking to one of my lecturers in Trinity that she told me about the Institute of Criminology in UCD in the law school. And I came over here to meet with the director, or the then director, Peter Young, uh, who suggested a PhD as an option. So I thought about it at length, because of course doing a PhD is a big commitment, <laughs> you're, you know, four years of your life. Uh, so I wanted to make sure it was something I really wanted to do. Um, and once I started doing the research, I realised it was exactly the right thing for me. This is where I belonged. Um, and it was really from you know doing my PhD that I became more interested in the field and in the area of probation in particular. And that was always my starting point. Uh, And I was also interested in looking at the impact of supervision on the lives of people subject to it. And I had the strong sense that if you're going to do research in criminology, you should actually speak to the people who are subject to these sanctions, uh, just because I wanted to to get their perspectives on it. And I was also aware that their voices weren't really represented very strongly in public debates or in academic debates, particularly in Ireland. So those were kind of partly my motivations as well as just being fascinated by the research topic itself. And so I was kind of feeling around for ideas about how to go about studying this topic. I knew I was interested in probation. I knew I was interested in the experiences of people on probation. And I wanted to know, you know, did it work? Was it effective? But that raised lots of questions about, you know, what effective actually means. Is it just about not offending anymore? Is it about being reintegrated back into society? Is it about you know simply being motivated to change? Where does you know, 
success start and where does it end? Um, and while I was grappling with these issues, I came across uh, desistance literature, particularly Shad Maruna's work, uh, but also the work of people like Laugren Sampson, uh, Giordano et al, uh, who were doing research almost around the same time as the early 2000s on the topic of desistance. And they were also talking about the kind of issues that I was interested in as well. And they talked about not so much the end result of desistance, but desistance as a process. And that was what really struck me because it doesn't necessarily end with the end of a sanction. So somebody finishes supervision, they haven't reoffended, that's counted as a success in official figures. But if that person ends up homeless with an untreated drug problem, is that a success? So looking at desistance research gave me a kind of a, a really interesting new framework through which to look at probation supervision, because I was able to look at how it worked to help people change their lives rather than you know, whether it was effective in and of itself. Because most of the desistance research, including my own, would suggest it plays a role, but it's not necessarily a defining role. What's more important is people's own attitudes, motivation, sense of hope about the future um, and their social circumstances as well. So if you've got somebody who's very optimistic about their capacity to change, who's strong family support and uh, maybe an employment prospect uh, ahead of him or her, they're more likely to change and probation can kind of enter into that process but it doesn't necessarily change the person, it gives them the resources and the opportunity to change themselves. And so when I did my own research, I wanted to extend it almost beyond just looking at probation supervision then to look at the person's desistance process and the role probation played in that process. Uh, so I went out and I interviewed 73 men who were on probation at the time. Uh, and I was, they were all repeat offenders, so they had quite long histories of um, crime and punishment. And I wanted to see um, how they actually managed that desistance journey. Um, so through those interviews, um, I was able to show that really the kind of the ultimate influence or kind of the ultimate thing that brought desistance about was that sense of hope, the sense that they could actually see a new self up ahead and that they could, you know, that it was credible so that they would be able to say, I want to be X and I believe I can achieve X. Whereas the people who didn't succeed as well were people who also wanted to change and perhaps had the capacity to change. But when they looked ahead, they saw, you know, who they would like to become, but they didn't see the path to getting there. So they would say, you know, I, I want to be employed, I want to be a good father, I want to be in a relationship, but that's never going to happen to me for the following reasons. And it was often that kind of lack of hope that led them in, back into offending, almost through, you know, you, you can almost see why, you know, if you were in that situation, why wouldn't you? What's your motivation or your incentive to stop offending if there's nothing up ahead for you? So I think that ties in with the more recent work in desistance on the structural dimensions of change, that it's not just up to the person to change, society has to meet them halfway and give them those opportunities to actually achieve their kind of desired selves. In terms of my uh, kind of my career progression, um, I suppose the um, after I'd done my PhD, actually I was like six months from the end of it, and I got a job as a postdoctoral researcher in NUI Galway. I worked with Connor Hanley on the Rape and Justice in Ireland project, and this was you know, a fascinating project to work on, very different from my PhD research, but it was looking at, um, first of all, victims' experiences of the criminal justice system, 
but we also looked at prosecutor files to look at how they made decisions about rape cases, what cases were more likely to be referred for prosecution, which cases were more likely to be declined, and then we were also able to look at court transcripts as well uh, to see how the courts dealt with um, cases involving uh, rape. So it was kind of, as I said, it was very different, but it was also very enlightening in terms of how the criminal justice system works uh, with victims, sometimes to make the process easier, but also sometimes to make it harder. Now I think one of the most shocking things to or that I learned from the research was how underreported rape is. In fact, it's estimated around 10% of people who experience rape reported to the police, which is a shockingly low figure. So, you know, the big issue is probably that there are people out there who aren't getting any support or any help. So, so that was kind of, you know, it was, it was a fascinating study to be involved in and it's become quite influential, I think, in terms of um, informing policy. It was, fun, it, was um, it was commissioned, it was commissioned by the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland and they're still using the findings, I think, to, um, you know, to try and improve practice in terms of how victims are dealt with. And from there, I went um, to the University of Sheffield. Um, there was a, a project going on there, actually, uh, since the time I was doing my PhD, looking at pathways to desistance in Sheffield. And it's funny because I read an article about the study while I was doing my PhD, and I remember wishing I could be involved in that project. So when I saw the job opportunity come up several years later, of course, I jumped at the chance. So while I was there, I worked with Tony Bottoms and Joanna Shapland, who are two leading experts in this field. And again, it was a fascinating experience for me to look at how desistance happens in a very different jurisdiction with a very different criminal justice system. So there are some similarities, but there are also a lot of differences as well, which I found you know, really enhanced my knowledge of um, how these processes actually happen. And from there I came back to Ireland. Uh, I did an Irish Research Council funded postdoctoral uh, study then, where I actually went back to my PhD sample and followed them up. It was several years later by this stage, and I wanted to be able to see how their lives had changed in a more long-term way. Uh, and it was also particularly interesting because as it happened, when I first interviewed them, it was 2003, 2004, which was the height of the Celtic Tiger. But when I interviewed them the second time, 2008-2009, that was the depths of the recession. So I was actually able to see how the different structural contexts shaped their pathways to desistance in the two different eras. And then you know, from there I got this job uh, as a, a lecturer in, in UCD School of Law. And how did you get into criminology in particular? I suppose... Well, I suppose that was, that was really how I got into it through my undergrad degree and then obviously through that into my um, PhD. Uh, and for the subject area, I chose to focus on probation. It was something that had interested me even when I was studying psychology. I was thinking about, um, you know, really the kind of practical usages of knowledge. You know, it's all very well to be in a kind of an academic setting, speaking to other academics, which is great and wonderful for us. But I also wanted to do something that had practical uh, real world applications as well. And probation as a topic attracted me because at that time there was a huge focus on imprisonment as the main solution, if not the only solution to the crime problem. So I thought you know, it'd be really interesting to look at probation as an alternative uh, to custody or as a sanction in, in its own right. But I was particularly interested in hearing what people on supervision thought about that experience. Uh, so that was really kind of my starting point for my PhD research. And you know, I suppose what drew it to me was 
in my you know my module on forensic psychology hearing about the people or the experiences of people who had been to prison and realizing there must be an alternative there that was really what attracted me to the field in the first place and what kind of drew me into doing the phd later on and what attracted you to criminology? Um, well, I suppose yeah, there were a number, I said I had a number of boxes that I'd like any job to tick. And I think this would tick the boxes or this area tick the boxes because first of all, it was varied. You know, no experience is the same. <laughs> day by day is very, very different. So it was never going to be boring. Uh, but maybe even more importantly, it had a social value. So I was very struck even you know, from a young age, as a teenager even, of the plight of people who are marginalised and maybe outcasts in society and certainly thinking about maybe drug addicts or people who had committed crime there was a sense that they were different from the rest of us that they didn't deserve the same supports as the rest of us that never sat well with me and I always wanted to hear more about their experiences and almost you know give them a voice to a certain extent, you know, obviously I was doing interviews uh, for my PhD research um, and that was a kind of a voice which was filtered through my own <laughs> worldview, of course. So it wasn't a direct voice, but I did want their voices to be represented in public debates and to be heard, you know, by people. Um, and, you know, by doing research, I hope that I'd be able to kind of get their perspectives into those debates and, you know, really to, to humanise them to a certain extent. And I know from speaking to people outside academia who've read my work and maybe don't work in the, in the area at all that they would often say you know wow these people are really articulate they're really intelligent you know they seem like good people and they were almost surprised by that so I felt my job was partly done even just by kind of making people think differently about a group that was often marginalized. What criminology work has influenced your work and how did it impact on the direction of your research? I think, um, I suppose this would bring me back maybe to the start of my PhD journey. Um, I was, as I said, interested in studying probation and I had a vague idea that I wanted to study its outcomes from the perspective of people who were on probation. Um, and most of the literature that I was reading was using recidivism as the outcome measure, um, but it seemed very flawed to me for a number of reasons. You know, it's very binary, you re-offend or you don't, whereas there might be cases where people were offending less often or committing less serious offences. So it didn't seem like the right measure for me. And also, just from what I knew at that stage, I felt it was quite narrow to focus just on whether somebody is offending or not. You know, if somebody has stopped offending, but they're homeless, they're still suffering from addiction problems, could you regard that as a success? So I was grappling with these issues and my supervisor recommended that I read Chad Maruna's book, Making Good. Um, and as soon as I read that, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And suddenly I said, yeah, desistance is what I'm interested in, in studying. How would you describe your research area? Um, I would describe maybe three research areas. I suppose the first area is desistance research, and, and maybe some of the listeners won't know what desistance means. Uh, it's really the process by which people stop offending, and you know, it involves lots of different factors, some of them internal to the person, uh, agency we often call it, hope, motivation, um, coping skills, that kind of thing. But it also involves social and societal factors as well. And um, so one of the kind of the main messages coming through desistance research at the moment is the idea that it's not just up to the person to change. Society has to help them by providing opportunities, by recognizing them, you know, when they do actually make efforts to change. So that's really the kind of the major area I work in. 
but I also work in a related area, which is probation, supervision. And again, I've mentioned that a little bit already, uh, but really I was interested in understanding, you know, the experiences of people on probation, but more recently, the experiences of people who work as probation officers. So we might talk about that, that aspect a little bit later. And then the third um, area I'm interested in is actually victims which some people would see as almost you know, the polar opposite. You know, how can you be um, doing research that tries to represent the views of offenders when you're also looking at the victim's experiences? But I would argue, and most people in the, the field would argue, that they're not actually that different. Because, you know, first of all, offenders can be victims. And in fact, most victim or victimization surveys would show that offenders are the most likely group in society to become victims. So it's not a kind of victims versus offenders. They are part of the same group to a certain extent. And you know, maybe even more importantly, even for those victims who haven't got that offending history, probably the main thing they want to come out of the criminal justice process is a reduction in future offending, because that will help to reduce future victimization. So to me, the two areas are quite compatible, even though maybe on the surface, they don't look like they are. Can you tell me about the research that led to the publication of Lives in Spaces? Sure. Um, it actually grew out of um, a research network, a cost research action um, called uh, Offender Supervision in Europe, which was chaired by Fergus McNeil and Crystal Baines. Um, and they were interested in looking at the experiences of probationers, probation officers, uh, and also the legal uh, and policy context of supervision across Europe. So there is you know, representatives from many European countries, and we all grouped into three or four thematic areas. And I joined the Experiencing uh, Supervision Group. Uh, again, it was, it was my main interest coming into the group, and I wanted to explore that further in the European context. One of my colleagues in the group, Wendy Fitzgibbon, who's now based at the University of Leicester, uh, came up with this fascinating idea of using photo voice as a way to study the probation experience. Um, and photo voice, just again, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, it starts with asking a group of people on probation, in this case, uh, to go out and take photographs that represent their experience of probation supervision. They then come back, um, you develop the photos, they lay the photos out on the table and they discuss you know, why they took particular photos, they choose ones that mean the most to them and they give them captions. So you've got the kind of photography but also the voice aspect of it as well. But ultimately the aim of these methods is to communicate their experiences to policymakers. So um, at the end of the focus groups there was then a kind of uh, or a development of an exhibition which in the Irish case we showed to policymakers, judges, academics uh, in two different sites in Dublin um, and again Wendy had uh, created this project um, within the well within the context of this cost action and she completed a number of pilot studies in England, uh, Scotland, Germany with other colleagues in the cost action and I was really fascinated by the preliminary results that she came up with or that they came up with and I asked her to come to Ireland to do the or repeat the study with with me uh, which she did uh, so we, we did the study in a Dublin-based probation office um, over a number of days and we produced huge number of photographs representing the different experiences of supervision. How did you find the voice methodology? Uh, I think it was 
it was challenging to a certain extent for me. I would consider myself not a particularly visually minded person. And I think one thing that struck me that was really interesting was while we were still in the working groups in the cost action, we went out to take photographs of what we thought uh, or that we thought would represent supervision ourselves. And I went out thinking there's no way I'm going to be able to take anything meaningful. But yet when I went out, suddenly I saw the world in a very different way. I was able to pick out you know, symbolic images that I felt represented how I saw supervision. So even though it was going outside my comfort zone, it was something that really interested me as a way of kind of exploring these issues from a different perspective and maybe even you know opening up latent talents for people that they didn't know they had i certainly didn't know i had that capacity before i did it and um, so that was really the kind of the major attraction to to me but at the same time of course it was challenging because it's very different you know it's one thing to sit down with a questionnaire ask your set list of questions which is you know a nice way and kind of an organized and structured way to do research but this was more open-ended participants have control of the process so they decide what photos they want to take so they're in charge of you know what is important in the research and they set the terms of it so it's challenging in a way to adopt a more democratic approach to research like that and to you know set yourself up as a co-researcher with the people you're researching so it's a very different way of doing research and i have to say i really enjoyed the whole experience what in your opinion is the added value of this approach I think for me, having used it to study the experience of probation supervision, one thing that really struck me was that a very different picture of supervision emerged, or at least a much broader picture. So I obviously in the past have interviewed people about their experiences of supervision, and you get you know, certain information from that. And you would almost think that you've, you've learned as much as you can about the supervision process. But when these men went out and took photos that represented their experience, they did take photos that represented the specific aspects of probation that they found helpful. You know, say, for example, uh, the kind of support provided by probation officers or rehabilitation workers, the education and training opportunities. That was consistent with maybe the research I'd done in the past. But they also brought in some extra things for example, the context of supervision. And again, you know, we can document them to a certain extent, talk to people about you know, what it's like in their communities, what their families are like and so on. But to see their lives in their particular communities represented quite vividly was really enlightening because you really see what it's like to try and stop offending and succeed on probation in what's often a very difficult atmosphere. So they took photos of homelessness, of maybe locations where um, people had um, been murdered, alcohol, gambling, you know, <laughs> bookies, all these kinds of things. So there is a lot, of, they, they showed the context and the challenges surrounding the probation experience, maybe much more vividly than um, an interview would. And I think maybe the other thing that really showed up that I don't think we would have seen otherwise is that not it's not just probation on its own that you have to look at it's part of a process and that process might even start before somebody is sentenced um, and one thing that really struck me was that a lot of the participants talked about the role of lawyers and how helpful they had been in terms of you know standing up for them getting the help they needed before sentencing and that's another area i don't think that has been researched extensively you know the role of lawyers beyond just defending their client in court that they can actually play a, an important role in you know desistance or in successful supervision as well so it's all these kind of extra things that you wouldn't necessarily get if you had your structured questionnaire in front of you when you let them set the agenda
In terms of newer work, what are you currently working on? I've got a few projects on the go at the moment. Um, I suppose one that I'm currently working on is in relation to the probation service. Um, I'm working with Louise Kennefick from NUI Galway, or sorry, NUI Galway, uh, from Maynooth University. Edit. <laughs> I'll say that again. I'm working... I'm working with Louise Kennefick from Maynooth University um, on an oral history of the probation service and we're interviewing people who started work as probation officers in the 1960s and we're interviewing people from every decade in the intervening period. So um, we're also going to start in the next few weeks interviewing people who are on probation during that same period. And what we hope to be able to do is to come up with an oral history project supported by archival and document or documentary research, um, really just looking at that history of probation in Ireland. So it's a slightly different angle on, on the, the areas of interest I've had over the last you know, 10 years or so. What is the most influential piece you have published and why? Yes, that was looking at that question, I found it kind of challenging. Uh, first of all, to think about what is influential, because you know it can be measured in lots of different ways. Is it the number of you know Google Scholar citations you have? Is it whether it's been used to aid policy making, or is it because you know somebody who's either working in the field or has been subject to supervision comes up and says that truly represented my experience. So trying to figure out you know, one, one piece of work that maybe covers all of those things, I probably have to say my book, The Dynamics of Desistance, Charting Pathways Through Change, which I published in 2010. It arose out of my um, PhD research with a bit of a follow-up study from a postdoctoral study uh, that I completed a few years later. Who are the Irish researchers whose work is important for criminology? I that's another question that is probably hard to answer because it is a growing and very vibrant field at the moment so it's very hard to pick out one or two because there are so many so um, with apologies to the people I'm not mentioning I suppose the, the one person I'd have to mention as a major influence on the field of Irish criminology would be my colleague Ian O'Donnell uh, who's done a lot of work um, for you know for many years, first of all, to establish the field and then to grow it, um, particularly over the last you know, decade or so. And um, I think one of the things that really strikes me about his work is that he has done research that has Irish relevance, but he manages to um, create a bridge between the Irish experience and the international experience. So the work he's doing isn't just relevant to Irish people, but it does have value to them it's also making an impact internationally too. And certainly that's a, a model that I've tried to adopt in my own research as well, because I do think the Irish experience is very interesting to international audiences. Maybe we don't appreciate that enough. And I think he's done a really good job of communicating the Irish experience abroad and also being, I suppose, an ambassador for, the, for Irish criminology too. How do you see the field of criminology in Ireland? What's next? Okay, well, maybe how is it at the moment? Uh, again, I mentioned Ian O'Donnell a moment ago. He wrote a fascinating article documenting the state of Irish criminology, I think it was maybe 15 years ago, and he described it as being in its infancy. And it was, certainly at that point, you know, there was a lot of, of work to be done to get it to a level um, where it is actually vibrant and prospering. But I think you know, maybe in the last, even the last five years, a lot has happened. 
to you know, to the point where we could describe Irish criminology as being in its adolescence, and that's certainly how um, I described Irish criminology in a book I co-edited with Claire Hamilton, um, Michelle Butler, and Yvonne Daly, the Rutledge Handbook of Irish Criminology. We tried to map the state of Irish criminology in the intervening years, and we felt that you know on the one hand you know it has moved on a lot from where it was you know even even in two thousand. But I suppose it's still got a long way to go too. So in terms of what's next, uh, that's again a hard question to answer because I think each generation of criminologists can bring something new to the table. So the kind of things that my generation is interested in may not be the main interests of the next group. So I, all I can say really to that is I look forward to seeing the angles they, they take on the topics we're, we're currently researching. What are Irish criminology's strengths and weaknesses, would you say? Okay. Um, I suppose the first strength, I think, I've written these down. <laughs> the first strength, I think, is that the Irish, or, you know, it is Irish, and that might sound like an odd thing to say, but as I said a moment ago, that idea of Irish exceptionalism, or Hibernian exceptionalism, as it's called quite often, I think it gives us a really kind of strong starting point for looking at international theories whether it's you know, theories about punitiveness, theories about desistance or you know, probation supervision, it's a good way to kind of look at and elaborate and really interrogate those theories to see if they have universal application or whether they're just you know, specific to a particular jurisdiction. Often when you read the literature from the kind of the big criminology countries, America, the UK, they almost talk as if their findings are universally relevant which isn't always the case. So um, looking at things through an Irish lens can give you a kind of a, a useful and maybe different angle on something that is widely accepted elsewhere. Um, so just to give kind of one example from Ian O'Donnell's work, um, he studied a concept called coercive confinement, which was looking at um, anyone who was involuntarily confined, whether it was in a prison, a psychiatric institution, a Magdalene laundry and so on. Um, and he used that, obviously, to analyse that uh, architecture in and of itself. But he also linked it into international debates about the increase in punitiveness, the rising prison populations. And he pointed out that if you take a broader view of confinement to include all these other institutions, then you'll actually find that the population who is confined has shrunk rather than grown in the last few years. Certainly in Ireland, I think he calculated one in every 100 Irish people was in some form of confinement in the 1950s. Only a fraction of that is in confinement today. So it's that kind of merging of the Irish experience, but also using it to interrogate international um, theories and, and, and frameworks and so on. So I think that's one of the major strengths. I think another strength is that it's quite multidisciplinary. So it's not narrowly focused on you know, law or sociology or psychology. It's a combination of all those different things. And you'll find, you know, what I find is very interesting is where I might look at a topic one way because I've come from a background in psychology. I'll hear a lawyer speak about it and they'll have a very different take on it. So if you take to say restorative justice as one example, as a kind of former psychologist or psychology student, I would be interested in looking at things like the impact on people, whether it increased satisfaction, you know, what was the, I suppose, the process itself like and how did it impact on the participants? And most of the research would suggest very positive things in that regard. 
But when I see law experts speak about restorative justice, they focus on things like you know, due process rights. So for example, does it you know, protect the rights of people in the way that a normal criminal trial would? And they've expressed a lot of doubts about that. So Dermot Griffin would be one person who's done a lot of work in that area in the past. So again, it's just that multidisciplinary aspect, looking at the same problem from different angles that I think is a really big strength of the field. And in terms of weaknesses? Weaknesses, I suppose I'll probably say the standard things that everybody says. Um, first of all, funding is always an issue. There isn't a huge amount of uh, funding available for people to do research. And that's always going to be a problem in terms of limiting you know, the kind of research people can do. But having said that, I think it's a strength as well, because it does give us a certain amount of independence. You know, that we have the ability to say things we might not be able to say if we worked in a different framework or environment so it's kind of it, it has pros and cons and i think the other thing you've probably heard from a lot of people as well is access you know there are some people who are very or some organizations that are very open to research and they're quite happy to have researchers come in and and, and do a piece of research on on their work but there are other agencies that are maybe more skeptical and that makes it hard to do enough research on that particular area. But again, having said that, I recognise that you know, maybe it's it's something that criminologists themselves have to think about. You know, why is it that these organisations are somewhat resistant to what we're trying to do? Maybe there's something we can do to make that relationship work better, you know, in the interests of everyone concerned. So sometimes there are very kind of good reasons why people don't want to or can't facilitate research. It could be that they haven't got the resources, you know, because it can be quite resource intensive to have a researcher come in if they have to be um, accompanied around buildings or if they have to be, you know, kind of, uh, or you know, if somebody has to download data from a file, for example, for them. So you have to look at it from both sides, I think. But nevertheless, that would be an issue, I think, is probably something a lot of criminologists would see in Ireland at the moment. How would you like to see criminology develop on the island? I think, well, I like the fact that you said on the island because um, we offer, you know, obviously with Brexit talk at the moment, we're, <laughs> we're going to see the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland perhaps get harder. Um, but I would like to see us continuing to have those discussions and conversations and collaborations with, you know, colleagues north and south of the border because I think there's a lot of interesting differences as well as similarities between the two jurisdictions and it's ripe for further comparative analysis for example and certainly we already have the north-south irish criminology conference which is a collaboration between north and south so i'd like to see more of that continuing more comparative work being done maybe really to establish a kind of a hibernian criminology as a you know a recognized international field perhaps Dr. Deirdre Healy, University College Dublin, thank you very much for taking part in UCC's podcast series. We appreciate your time. You're welcome.